Okay, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Today is Thursday again, uh, August 5, Class 9 of the read-through and discussion of uh, life and teachings of Nisargadatta Maharaj, uh, mainly from the uh, reminiscences of David Godman, a student or um, devotee, and um, quotes directly from Nisargadatta of his understanding of reality, his uh, teachings on non-duality and sat. And uh, I'm going to come back now and take a few more readings or pages, hopefully get some more done uh, in the reminiscences from David Godman. So I call him David. The questioner is Harriet. He calls uh, Nisargadad Maharaj and he calls Ramana Maharshi um, Bhagwan. So just keep that in mind. So we're in the middle of the page five. Uh, if you're looking on, it's below the picture of Nisargadat and Mularpatan. Mularpatan was a translator and I think a teacher in his own right as well, or an author perhaps. I think he was an author of one of the important books. And uh, just finished the discussion where Nisargadat is basically saying there's no karma, but people come because they have a pure or an impure chemical. Uh, so the last comment is, people who come to a teacher with a strong thirst for freedom are the ones who have only a few impurities. They are the ones for whom liberation is possible, of course. And so uh, uh, how much one attains in any one lifetime very much depends on how strong one seeks it, as well as where one starts from. So, let's start then, Harriet asks after. So, did he think that the people who came to him were, quote, advanced? There must have been a mixture of all kinds of people. They couldn't all have been candidates for liberation. David replies, yes, there was a very eclectic mix of people there, from curiosity seekers to people who traveled halfway around the world because they were desperate for liberation and thought that Maharaj could help them. I sometimes used to sit next to a homeopathic doctor who lived just a few streets away. He had no interest in liberation and just saw Maharaj as a good source of entertainment. He said, this is the best show in the neighborhood. I just come here because I like watching how Maharaj deals with all the people who come. I don't believe a word he says, but he puts on a good show. <laughs> so there are people there who don't believe anything, but they're like uh, getting entertainment. So that's cute. Uh, and he goes on saying, This man, incidentally, told me that Maharaj's language in the original Marathi was occasionally very crude and vulgar. He told me that the translators, who were all respectable middle-class Hindus, were probably too embarrassed to pass on the full force of his vulgarity. At the end of the sessions, he would take me aside on the street outside and take great delight in telling me about all the various sexual jokes and innuendos that the translators had omitted to tell us. I think the doctor's entertainment included watching his neighbors squirm as they listened to Maharaj's more outrageous remarks. I mean, my comment is, uh, I wouldn't want a translator who, who did that. <laughs> I would not like a translator who uh, decides, to, you know, translators... <laughs> Yet another department of uh, in the catalog of human distortion is uh, 
<laughs> immature, incompetent translators. I've met many. So, going on, he said, Maharaj, to some extent, determined the sort of people who were likely to come and stay by setting the agenda on what he was willing to talk about and what he wasn't. He wasn't interested in what he called, quote, kindergarten lessons. That meant he generally refused to talk about many of the tenets of traditional Hinduism, ritual worship, karma and reincarnation, common practices such as japa, meaning beads, uh, recitation or mantra, things like that. A large proportion of the foreigners who were there had come because they had read I am that, tvam, tatvam asi, just a moment here, and uh, my proper translation for tatvamasi is such I is, or such is I. They wanted to talk, you know, <laughs> they don't, the, the, this, the people on this world don't really love truth, okay, in general. The, the, the very few people love truth, and so they'll do anything to make it their own. They want to make it their own uh, more than they love universal truth. It's as simple as that. And so <laughs> making it easy for you is actually a way of taking control uh, for me uh, in some cases because it, it basically disrespects your capacity to figure it out yourself. Anyway, going on, they wanted to talk about liberation, not traditional Hindu practices and traditions, meaning the Westerners. And Maharaj was happy to oblige them. So you see the difference between Westerners seeking moksha and um, Hindu local people seeking clarification of uh, doctrine. The people who wanted to talk about other things soon left to find somewhere more suitable for their inclinations and interests. Some, though, came with traditional ideas and beliefs and fell under the spell of Maharaj and his radical teachings, but I think these people were in the minority. I remember Mular Patan telling us one day, quote, I was a traditional Ram Bhakta. Bhakta means uh, Bhakti Yogi, uh, devotee. When I first arrived here, I thought that if I could have a vision of Ram, I would be sure to join him in Vaikuntha, Ram's heavenly realm, or you know the higher dimension, the, the Deva Deva Loka of Ram. The first day I came, Maharaj told me that Vaikuntha didn't exist. I was very shocked to hear a guru speak like this. But I felt attracted to him and I stayed on. Within a short period of time, I dropped all my ideas about the gods and their heavens. And some Buddhists do that too. <laughs> you can drop your ideas, but that doesn't mean there isn't. And so, <laughs> uh, the reason Nisargadat talked to him, uh, said there isn't, is because he was overly attached to there is. And needed to drop that for his own uh, greater liberation. Some of the other local people were very much interested in Maharaj's uncompromising teachings on liberation, but during the time that I was there, the foreigners generally outnumbered the locals by about three to one in the morning, in the morning question and answer session. This could have been because many of the Bombay devotees had to go out to work, but even on weekends and holidays, the foreigners always outnumbered the Indians. There was a separate session in the evening that was conducted in Marathi, this is a similar language, or the same as Nichinanda spoke, by the way, or knew. 
he knew others too, I guess, and so did Maharaj. Uh, we were never invited to that because there wasn't enough room for everyone, so I have no idea what went on in those sessions conducted in Marathi language. Harriet asks, did you get the feeling that the foreigners were treated a little differently from the local people? David says, I would just say that we had different attitudes, different backgrounds, and for the most part, different aspirations. When we spoke to Maharaj, his answers reflected those differences. One morning, a new Indian couple arrived and asked Maharaj in English a series of questions about how to live a detached spiritual life while they were in the middle of all their family and work responsibilities. This is a standard question in India, and everyone in the guru business must have a standard answer to it. Maharaj dealt with them very politely and respectfully and talked to them for about 15 minutes. At the end of that period, he asked them to leave. This was a little bit unusual. Usually, when a questioner had finished talking to Maharaj, he would go back to his seat and listen to what everyone else had to say. On this occasion, Maharaj watched them disappear down the staircase. He waited about ten seconds more before bursting into a delighted laughter. Slapping his thigh, he said, That's the sort of boring conversation I used to have every day before all you foreigners came along. <laughs> so he is a regular fellow as well. I think he enjoyed talking to people who didn't come along to talk about all their family or work problems. He also knew he could be more irreverent and risque with the foreigners, which was something he enjoyed. And the many foreigners enjoy it too. Can you give me an example? asks Harriet. David says, One morning he looked around and noticed that there were no local people, uh, no local people there at all except for one translator. A mischievous look appeared on his face and he said, Three things are absolutely necessary for human life. Food, oxygen, and sex. We all perked up. <laughs> that was something different from the usual lecture on consciousness. We waited for him to elaborate, to develop his theme and explain in more detail, but he refused to elaborate. Instead, he said, Come on, somebody dispute that statement. It's very controversial. Somebody disagree with me. It looked like he wanted to start an argument, but about what wasn't clear. When no one else seemed interested in disputing his statement, everybody agrees, I stepped into the breach to be the fall guy. He said, If you don't breathe for a few minutes, you die, I began. If you don't eat for a few weeks, you die. But I've never heard of anyone dying because they didn't have sex. How can you say that it is essential for human existence? Right, so he's starting the argument. <laughs> Maharaj refused to explain himself. He said he just repeated himself. Three things are absolutely necessary for human life. Food, oxygen, and sex. Certainly, if there's no sex, there's no birth. So, somebody having sex is needed for the birth of a body for a human life. Then, David says, I couldn't see where he was going with the conversation, or where he wanted me to go with it. He probably didn't want it to go anywhere. Are you saying that we should all have sex because if we don't, we will die? I was trying to provoke him into revealing why he had suddenly brought this topic up. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying three things are absolutely necessary for human life. Food, oxygen, and sex. All right. David goes on. I tried a couple of other approaches, but didn't get anywhere. And no one else in the room seemed willing to pitch in and help out. <laughs> they had fun with these dialogues. He just kept on repeating his original statement. After a few minutes, he heard footsteps on the stairs. He immediately started talking about consciousness. <laughs> and as the new visitors, a group of local people, came into the room, he was well into one of his standard explanations. 
He obviously didn't feel comfortable discussing sex in front of his Marathi devotees. I never did find out what was the point of his statement because he never brought it up again. <laughs> what was the point? Well, I guess he just considered that a truth that, was, that he wanted to say. Harriet says, From what you're saying, I get the feeling that Maharaj had a great respect for the foreigners who came because they came looking for the truth about themselves, not for some palliative, a practice or belief that would keep them happy for a while. David said, In one sense, yes. Uh, I did hear him say a couple of times that he respected the fact that we had all abandoned our lives in the West in order to come to India in search of liberation, moksha, mukti. But that didn't mean that in practice he treated us respectfully. We all got shouted at at various occasions. We all got told off from time to time because of things we did or said. We all were a little fearful of him because we never knew when the next eruption would come. We had all come to him to have the dirt beaten out of us, in the same way that the dobis clean clothes by smashing them on rocks. Maharaj smashed our egos, our minds, and our concepts on the immovable rock of the self, because he knew that in most cases that was the only way to help us. I told you a few minutes ago that Maharaj discounted all theories of reincarnation, but he did tell one story that possibly indicated that we had all been searching for God in India before. You know, you know, Maharaj or Nisargadat, as he had said, um, is doing more than constructing a coherent doctrine. He has enough doctrine to offer, but he's really doing a kind of shaktipat um, by uh, argument, by by debate, by discussion, a verbal shaktipat, a conceptual. Uh, verbal teaching Shaktipat, Sadhana Shaktipat. Shaktipat means the pot of Shakti. The pot is a little bit like a pat, like a pat on the back pat. The Shakti transmission. What is that? Shiva Shakti. Okay, well, that's Kundalini, basically, or Prana. Fine. What's being, what's being pot is the Shakti, which is Prana, which is intelligent energy, which is divine power or universal power or light prior to vibration. So he's transmitting energy by concept. Sometimes he says contradictory concept. There is reincarnation, there isn't reincarnation. There is uh, karma, there isn't karma. Fine. And not, not everybody can, can handle that because the purpose of the mind is to get beyond the mind. And he knows that. The purpose of the mind is not to um, make a, a sandcastle in the, in the mind. Uh, to make a structures in the mind and live there. Uh, the purpose of mind is to be free of the octave. Boom. So the purpose of the octave is to be free of the octave? That's weird. The purpose of the octave or creation is for the creator to experience the creation. Uh, but the creation evolving. Uh, the cre- its creation of light evolving. For us in the octave, our greater purpose is to get out of the octave. <laughs> Experience all things desired, as Ra said, uh, and you will taste dukkha, 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 and sukkha, dukkha, sukkha, dukkha, dukkha, sukkha, and eventually seek, you know, or continually seek um, greater liberation, freedom from dukkha, which equals freedom from ignorance, of course. Uh, for that, the purpose of mind is to get out of the octave. Nothing more. <laughs> now, that 
comprehension is a part of that, but in general, we get stuck in our comprehension. And so comprehension resolves confusion. Comprehension uh, view normally becomes an attachment then too. Tanha, tanha, what is it? What would you say? Tana ditti, uh, ditti bhava, <laughs> the becoming of ditti view. So there's samaditti, right view, which counteracts wrong view and confusion. Cool. But most people get attached to samaditti, and then they have uh, tana ditti or uh, ditti bhava, meaning the becoming or craving of view, meaning attached to our opinions about this and that and the other thing. Very nearly no one is free of that because nearly no one knows that the mind is sunya. Manas is sunya. Vijnana is sunya. Vijnana is sunya. <laughs> Ahamkara is is maya. Nobody knows that. So if you don't know that, then you think I am this mind. This mind is real and solid and substantial. My thoughts and my view is reality. This finger is the moon. No, it's just a finger, not the moon. So he knows that. So instead of um, making uh, a necklace of fingers, <laughs> a um, bonus question, who was the uh, Angulimala? Rather than making yet another Angulimala, mala is a bead, you know, like a, a bracelet of beads for japa, mantra, recitation. Rather than making an Angulimala, a finger bead mala, like the uh, opponent of Gautama who tried to kill him, whose name was Angulimala. Rather than make Angulimala of even Samaditi, meaning right view, uh, Nisargadat is basically trying to blast devotees, seekers' attachment to view. There's no ego, of course, so maybe David doesn't know that, but there's no ego to be destroyed. There's no self to be realized. Duh. There's no self to be realized. <laughs> self is, is satat, tatsat. That's, that's self. Tatsat is self. What else? What else is, uh, is uh, you know, satchit or tatsat? The chit of sat, the chit of tatsat. That's aham. It's the aham after, finished with the aham karm. When the aham karm is finished, there's no aham, there, there's no karm. There's just aham. But that aham is tatsat. Duh. Tat vamasi. <laughs> this tat, this, this tvam is tat. That's what, <laughs> that's what is realized. It's not an ego. It's not a self. I don't know why he even calls it self, frankly. Why, why it's even called self-realization is strange to me. Because it ain't a, it ain't a me. It's boundless awareness. That's it. That's tatsat. So... <laughs> Meanwhile, knowing that, um, he uh, fucks around with people who are, don't realize how stuck they are in, in reification of thought, in, the re- in, in uh, harmful reification of mind. All right, got it? Good. At the end, and next he says, at the end of the Ramayana, he said, this is a teaching from um, Nisargadat. Um, at the end of the Ramayana, he said, All the animals who had helped Ram to win the war were given rewards. The monkeys were all told that they could go to monkey heaven. Now, what is heaven to a monkey? Vast quantities of food, lots of fighting, and limitless sex. 
So, all the monkeys were reborn as human beings in the West, in the 20th century, to experience their idea of heaven. Cute. After some time, though, they all began to get bored of this excess. One by one, they all started coming back to India because they wanted to find Ram and be with him again. (laughs) That's very sweet. Harriet said, What did he shout at you for? David said, I remember one time trying to talk to him about effort. Right? Virya. Virya. Like Mahavira. I remember one time trying to talk to him about effort. I think I was talking about the various efforts I had made to realize the self. This was soon after I started to see him. I didn't realize at the time that the word effort, quote, effort, was a no-no in that room. (laughs) He really didn't like anyone using it. The idea that there was a person who did something to achieve some spiritual state was a complete anathema to him, right? He seemed to feel that it showed a complete lack of understanding of his teachings. (coughs) Absolutely. Right. These are called reifications. This is... This is... um, (laughs) <laughs> this is the basis of Tanamanas, the eighth fetter conceit, the craving of uh, identity, craving identity, the basis of subjectivity, the basis of subject-object duality, uh, the making of aham, not the aham, the aham karm, eighth fetter, <clears throat> is the view that I am a person and I must do something in time and space because there's something to be done and something not to be done and something to do and not to do and there's doing and not doing to achieve some spiritual state that I'm going to hold on to and stay and that's my liberation. Uh, That was a complete anathema to him, as it should be. He seemed to feel that it showed complete lack of understanding of his teachings. Hmm. When he started to get annoyed with me for using the word effort, I just plowed ahead, thinking innocently that he probably hadn't understood what I was trying to say. The more I attempted to describe my, quote, efforts and justify them, the more annoyed he got with me. (laughs) I like this guy, of course. I... I... (laughs) My Satguru is much more Nityananda, but uh, I myself am closer to Nisargadat. But he's a little too rough sometimes, actually. You know, (laughs) it's like um, Lin Chi... And the madman Puyi or Puji uh, in the stories of Linchi, uh, Rinzai Roku, Linchi, 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 Linchi Lu. That's what I might do next. Uh, 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 good idea. <clears throat> That's might interesting. Okay, thank you. I ended up getting an earful about my wrong understanding and wrong attitude. I was quite taken aback at the time. Ooh. I had never come across a teacher before who disparaged hard work and effort on the spiritual path. Mm. And that's the fine line, because um, actually effort and work are needed, but it's sort of, it's (laughs) much more subtle than we think. On the contrary, it's very much a work of surrendering, actually. It's a work of wu-wei, hardcore wu-wei. He so goes on. On the contrary, all the others I had encountered had heartily endorsed such activities. Patting him on the head. That's why I initially thought that there must have been some kind of misunderstanding. I realized later that when Maharaj spoke, he wasn't giving instructions that he wanted you to act on. He was simply telling you who and what you were. You were supposed to understand and experience what he was talking about, not turn it, to, turn it into a practice. 
Making a practice out of it simply confirmed for him that you hadn't really understood what he was saying. One question that always rubbed him the wrong way was, quote, Yes, Maharaj, I understand intellectually what you're saying, but what do I do to actually experience it? If you said that, you didn't understand him or what he was trying to do at all. <clears throat> it is interesting to me personally, as Mr. Scott here, that people keep asking what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do. God damn it, figure it out yourself. Nobody taught the teacher what to do, actually. The teacher figured it out for himself, herself as well, what to do. Figure it out yourself. I don't know what to do. I'm not you. You know what to do. And if you don't know what to do, do what you think is best. How do you think anybody evolves? We do what we think is best. And when we fall on our face, we get up and try not to do it again. And when we get up, or when we do, and things turn out well, we learn something from that too. So nobody can say what to do. And these people, many people, you know, they want uh, mommy-daddy. I mean, I like mommy-daddy too, but... (laughs) Sorry, I gotta do my own thing here. That's the only way. Nobody can... Nobody can direct my will, or I don't want one directing my will. And that's what you've got with humanity today. <laughs> a planet of people who have not rightly, have not learned to rightly direct their own will towards um, truly wholesome, you know, kusala dhamma, uh, wholesome dhammas. And so they end up being overmastered by evil. Going on, top of page six. Time check. David goes on, I have an embarrassing memory of another time he got angry with me. One afternoon, my attention was wandering, and my mind was embroiled in some larger-than-life ego fantasy. I was off in my own little world, not really listening to what was going on. Maharaj stopped the answer he was giving to someone else, apparently in mid-sentence, turned to me, and started shouting at me. (laughs) See, he's telepathic. Demanding to know whether I was listening and understanding what he was saying, because he knew he wasn't. I did a little prostration as an apology, put my attention back on what he was talking about. Afterwards, a few people wanted to know why he had suddenly launched such a ferocious attack on me. That's because that's he loves him. It's, it's love that, that did that. It's real care. So far as they were concerned, I was just sitting there minding my own business. I definitely deserved that one, though. In respect, I can say that it increased both my attentiveness and my faith in him. When you know that the teacher in front of you is continuously monitoring all your thoughts and feelings, it makes you clean up your mental act quite a bit. Yes, a great teacher is quite aware. I mean, these guys really are, you know, in another in another way, a greater Tao than us. <clears throat> they are uh, in real time aware of the thought process of everybody in the room. I mean, the great ones are. And that's pretty amazing. <laughs> On another occasion, Maharaj got angry with me simply because one of the translators didn't understand what I had asked. I said that the previous day he had said one thing, whereas this morning he was saying what appeared to be the exact opposite. The translator somehow assumed I was criticizing the quality of the translation on the previous day and passed on my critique to Maharaj. He got really angry with me over that, but that just one, but that one just bounced off me because I realized immediately that it was all due to misunderstanding. Someone eventually told the translator what I had actually said, and he apologized for all the trouble his comments had caused. These dirty translators. Translators are like failed teachers. They're like failed stars. Uh, 
it's a shitty job, and there are very few people who really are a brilliant translator. I had one excellent translator, the most excellent translator in Japan, a woman with a square jaw, perfectly square jaw, um, very good person, totally wanderer, probably 5D, very wisdom over love, very positive, and she just loved it. She just ate it all up. I talked, she heard it, bang out to English, ring out, boom, out to English. She just got it. She just digested. <clears throat> she combusted fully the English into uh, translation to Japanese speech immediately. She worked for Voice, the company Voice in Tokyo. She was the best. And that's just because she, it just suited her. It just suited her real well. So it's good to do the job that suits you. Mm. You've got to know yourself well to know what, what you are, that which an occupation might rightly suit. Uh, one's character configuration <clears throat> is suited to what? Well, you've got to know what the character configuration is before you can know, uh, at least think about what would be a suitable occupation, profession, or working. That's people, place, work. That's the work sign. That what we do suits what we are. Not, or who we are, maybe. <clears throat> so anyway, that translator thought that he was, that David was criticizing translation quality when actually he was simply saying it sounded to be the opposite of what you said before. And Maharaj defends the translator. Um, and it wasn't that the translator made a mistake. It was that he was translating... Nisargadat giving contradictory teachings, which is not a problem either. Harriet says, were the translators all good? Yeah, they were all good. I've been told that some were better than others. <laughs> Even that is a weak, weak-willed statement. <clears throat> some of them are actually lousy. Actually, it's very rare to have uh, um, a stable of excellent translators. Very rare. Uh... Dharma Realm Buddhist University, DRBU, Dharma Realm Buddhist University, at uh, Ukiah, California, Shenhua, Master Hua's um, Sangha, uh, hardcore Chinese Buddhist. They translated dozens and dozens of books uh, from Chinese Mahayana to from from Chinese to English, <clears throat> including Sanskrit to Chinese to English. Uh, they had a team. They had probably 10 or 15 people. Mm -hmm. That's the way to do it. A translation team. Scholars and monks and nuns, practitioners and um, uh, observers, and um, that was the way to do it. They went through round after round of translation of a book, of a single text or scripture. Then, you know, from <laughs> consulting the Sanskrit and the Chinese, going to English, working it again, again, again. That's the way to do it. But who has the time and the resources for that? But that's the right way. David goes on. <clears throat> yes, there were good ones and not so good ones. I think everyone knew who was good and who was not, but that didn't result in the good ones being called on to do the work if they happened to be there. There seemed to be some process of seniority at work. The translators who had been there the longest were called on first, irrespective of ability. And those, And the problem is that screws up the students' thinking. Uh, and those who might have done a better job would have to wait until those more senior devotees were absent. When I first went, a man called Supper did most of the morning translations. He was very fluent, 
and seemed to have a good grasp of Maharaja's teachings, but he interpolated a lot of his own stuff in his English answers. Two sentences from Maharaj might turn into a two-minute speech from supper. Ho, ho. Who hasn't seen that before? It's, you know... And they wonder why they're ignorant. And they wonder why they live in Dukkha. Mm-mm-mm. Even though most of us didn't know any Maharati, we knew that he must be making up a lot of his stuff simply because he was talking for so long. Several people complained to Maharaj about this, but he always supported supper and generally got angry with the people who complained about him. I wouldn't have <laughs> done that, but that was the cause of the outburst I just mentioned. Maharaj thought that I was yet another person complaining about Sapper's translations, which were poor. <laughs> or at least they added much. Who knows what Nisargadat is thinking. He must, you know, he's doing service to Sapper. And um, maybe um, he considers it useful for the devotees to deal with that. Just because uh, Sapper's there, it's a universal fate that he's there, and he didn't want to interrupt it. <laughs> And uh, everybody gets just what they need, uh, which includes distortion or uh, Sopper's own interpolations. Then he goes on, Muller Patan was next down the pecking order. I liked him because he was very literal, possibly not quite as fluent as some of the others, but he scored points with me because he stuck to the script both ways. Meaning, the tra- uh, in a, a literal word-to-word translation of um, Nisargadat's Uh, speech and answer, and the questioner's speech or question as well. I once asked Maharaj a question through him, and when the answer came back, it made absolutely no sense at all. Mular Patando was beaming at me as if he had just delivered some great pearl of wisdom. I thought about it again, and it still made no sense, and so I said, somewhat apologetically, I don't understand any of that answer. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. I know replied Mular Patan. It didn't make any sense to me either, but that's what Maharaj said, and that's what I translated. Ding, 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 ding. That's, that's called the top translator in my book. It doesn't matter you don't understand. Your job is not to understand. Your job is to translate. <laughs> don't you know that? <laughs> Duh. If you can't understand it, fine. Translate as purely as you can, literally as, as possible. Look at Tao Te Ching. <laughs> you have gazillion translations. Each one goes further from the original, actually. Somewhat relieved, I asked him to tell Maharaj that neither of us had understood what he had said and requested him to explain the topic a little differently. Then we got on with the conversation. I really respected Mular Patan for this. Mm-mm. I, me too. He didn't try to put some sense into the answer, and he didn't tell Maharaj that his answer didn't make any sense. <laughs> he just translated the words for me in a literal way because those were the words that Maharaj had intended for me to hear. Oh, what an idea. What a radical concept for a translator. Right at the bottom, in terms of seniority anyway, was Ramesh Balsakar, who also became a teacher. He didn't come to see Maharaj until some point in 1978. I thought this was unfortunate because in my opinion, and in the opinion of many of the other foreigners there, <clears throat> he was by far the most skillful of the translators. He had a good understanding of the way foreign minds worked and expressed themselves, and a good enough intellect and memory to remember and translate a five-minute rambling monologue from a visitor. Very difficult. He was so obviously the best, many of us would wait until it was his turn to translate. That meant that there were occasionally some long, embarrassing silences when the other translators were on duty. <laughs> <clears throat> Everyone was waiting for them to be absent. 
so that Balsakar could translate for them. <laughs> All the translators had their own distinctive style and their own distinctive phrases, and, and bear that in mind when you read any book from original text of another language. <clears throat> Always the case. Very hard to find a, a fine translator. Very hard. When I read Gene Dunn's books in the 1980s, <clears throat> I was transported back into Maharaja's room because I'd be hearing the words, not just reading them. I would look at a couple of lines, recognize Mular Patan's style, or whoever, it else, whoever else it happened to be, and from then on I would hear the words in my mind as if they were coming out of the translator's mouths. This is again the Gene Dunn translations in the 80s. <clears throat> and so she was uh, very conscientious with transcribing translators, uh, the different translators' uh, translations. She had a tape recorder. Harriet then goes on, So all these books are simply a transcription of what the interpreter said on the day of the talk. They're not translations of the original Marathi. <clears throat> they're, tra they're transcriptions of translations. David said, I don't know about the other books, but I know that's what Jean did. For a couple of weeks, I spent the afternoon in her flat, which was near Chaupati Beach. <clears throat> on that particular visit, my own place was too far away, so I just slept there at night. Jean was doing transcriptions for Seeds of Consciousness at the time, another book, and she would occasionally ask for my help in understanding difficult words on the tape, or she would ask for an opinion on whether a particular dialogue was worth including. I know from watching her work and from reading her books later that she was working with the interpreter's words only. Harriet asked, did she ask Maharaj if she could do this work and how did she get this job? David says, from what I heard, it was the other way around. He asked her to start doing the work. <clears throat> this created a bit of resentment oh, among some of the Marathi devotees, some of whom thought that they had the rights to Maharaj's words. There was an organization. Uh -huh. Humans in organization, beware of them. A ken 3D repeaters in formation. Beware, beware the 3D repeaters in formation, said I, not him. There was an organization, a Kendra, that had been set up in his name, Nisargadatz, to promote him and his teachings. And certain members seemed a bit miffed that they'd been left out of his decision. One of them came to the morning session and actually said to Maharaj that he, the visitor, alone had the right to publish Maharaj's words because he was the person in the Kendra who was responsible for such things. 3D repeater information alert. I thought that this was an absurd position to take. If you set up an organization to promote the teachings of your guru, right, the guy you're supposed to respect, and your guru then appoints someone to bring out a book of his teachings, the organization should try to help, not hinder, the publication. Maharaj saw things the same way. In his usual blunt way, he said, I decide who publishes my teachings, not you. It's nothing to do with you. I've appointed this woman to do the job, and you have no authority to veto that decision. The man left, and I never saw him again. Good. Kick the bum out. <clears throat> I mean, beware 3D repeaters in formation. Beware. Harriet said, Did you never feel tempted to write about Maharaj yourself? You seem to have written about all the other teachers you have been with. David said, On one of my early visits, Maharaj asked me what work I did at Ramanashramam, 
took me a while to, to learn how to say that by myself, you know. Ramanashramam. Ramanashramam is the Ramana Ashram of Ramana Maharshi. And so David said, I told him that I looked after the ashram's library and that I also did some book reviewing for the ashram's magazine. He gave me a strong look and said, why don't you write about the teachings? Meaning his own or <clears throat> what, Ramana's teachings? I remember being a little surprised. It's interesting, actually. He's just, he's just basically um, a librarian <laughs> and doing some book review. Same as Carla, right? Carla was a librarian, Carla Rueckert. So, good for a wonder. Why don't you write about the teachings? Like, you know, you're in the ashram, and, and Nisargadat can see that David Godman is a high mind and a, a mature soul and capable. Why don't you do something more? You have great capability. <clears throat> and then... David says, I remember being a little surprised at the time because at that point in my life, I hadn't written a single word about Ramana Maharshi or any other teacher. And what's more, I had never felt any interest or inclination in doing so. It may actually be that he didn't think he was up to the task or didn't see his own aptitude. Maharaj was the first person to tell me that this was what I should be doing with my life, or at least for now. As for writing about Maharaj... The opportunity never really arose. In the years that I was visiting him, I wasn't doing any writing at all, and in the 1980s and 90s I had lots of other projects and topics to occupy myself with. <clears throat> when I saw David Wilcock in 96-97, uh, uh, he came for a personal session in Connecticut at a UFO conference, and I saw what his capabilities were, and I recommended that he go forth and uh, do his thing. So, speaking and writing and teaching, um, and that he was more than capable to do so. And he did. And then, you know, <laughs> it went its own way, or things turned out as they did, and he made his decisions. Harriet goes on, You have some good stories to tell, and some interesting interpretations of what you think Maharaj was trying to do with people. I'm finding all this interesting. And I'm sure other people would if you took the trouble to write it down. True. David said, Yes, as I've been talking about all these things today, a part of me has been saying, you should write this down. The feeling, this is, this is a transcription of their interview, or her interview of David, before it was transcribed. Or, or it was a, you know, this is a transcription of the interview. The interview happened before the transcription of the interview. And at that time, he said, I should write it down. <laughs> yeah. The feeling has been growing as I have been talking to you. After you leave, maybe I will start and try to see how much I can remember. Reminiscences, and that's what this 10-page uh, article is about. Harriet said, I suppose we should have talked about this much earlier, but how did you first come to hear of Maharaj and what initially attracted you to him? And by the way, you know, when these guys who are older than, maybe 10 years older than me, or more, uh, people like Jack Goldstein, Joseph Kornfeld, David Godman, a lot of these guys were basically 10, 20 years older than me. I'm born in 62. I'm not sure when he's born, but <clears throat> these guys were um, 10 years or 10, 20 years ahead of me in age. But what I was doing in the late 70s was similar to what they were doing, although they were uh, you know, over 18 and, and going around the world uh, doing it, meaning really living in sanghas and... Uh, 
talking to gurus and doing practice and uh, living a homeless life a bit. So uh, I looked at the books that he read too. So he explains, sometime in 1977, I gave a book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism by Chogyam Trungpa, Trungpa Rinpoche. I read that too. (laughs) Very important book. To a friend of mine, Murray Feldman. Murray Feldman. Hmm. Sounds Chinese. And said that he would probably enjoy reading it. I knew he had a background in Buddhism, and he had done some Tibetan practices, so I assumed he'd like it. He responded by giving me a copy of Tathamasi, I is such, such is I, saying that he was sure I'd enjoy it. Murray had known about Maharaj for years and had even been to see him when Maurice Friedman was a regular visitor uh, in the earlier 70s, I guess. I remember Murray's vivid description of the two of them together, two old men having intensely animated discussions during which they'd both get so heated and excited they would be having nose-to-nose arguments with lots of raised voices and arm waving in Marathi. <laughs> he had no idea what they were meaning, uh, Nisargadat and David uh, and um, Maurice Friedman, who was a pretty, you know, who uh, Nisargadat had said had been or was a yani, uh, had realization, which uh, is very reasonable. <laughs> Some non-Hindus do. So... Uh, he had no idea of Murray telling David about the meetings of <laughs> these Argadot and Maurice Friedman in the 70s. He had no idea what they were talking about, but he could feel the passion from both sides. In those days, if you visited Maharaj, you were likely to be the only person there hmm, in the early 70s. You'd get a cup of tea and a very serious one-on-one discussion with no one else present. Those are the halcyon days. It's like with Nisargadot, with, with Nityananda in the late tw- in the early 30s in the south when he um, had his own place uh, but it was still kind of a jungle I forgot the name of the, the location um, sitting alone with, with, with Nityananda you know at 10 p.m. on the on the veranda mm. <laughs> those are the days so <clears throat> uh, just a moment in time, and then it's then it dissolves. Uh, a few years later, I heard Maharaj say, I used to have a quiet life, but Tatvamasi has turned my house into a railway station platform. Anyway, back to the story. David goes on. I'm digressing before I've even started. I went through the book, and I have to admit that I had some resistance to many of the things Maharaj said. I was living at Ramanashramam at the time, and practicing Bhagwan's teachings, Bhagwan Ramana Maharshi. There were clear similarities between Maharaj Nisargadat was saying and what Bhagwan Ramana was saying or had taught, but I kept tripping over the dissimilarities, statements that the I am, Tatvam, uh, or I guess it's what, Tvam Asi, uh, statements that the Aham, or I am, was ultimately not real, for example. Aha! However, the book slowly grew on me, and by the end I was hooked. In retrospect, I think I would say that the power that was inherent in the words, it was actually in the speaker speaking the words, somehow overcame my intellectual resistance to some of the ideas. Many of these Westerners who came to the Indian gurus in these times, 
were um, over-intellectual, busy thinkers. Not many who went far, not, 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 not many came um, without a, a lot of intellectual baggage. A lot of these people could have been professors. They were academics at heart. <clears throat> they came with a very, they came by intellectual uh, motivation. I mean, they had motivation for liberation, of course, but they were kind of intellectuals. And that was, they were, they had suffering, of course, um, but they were fascinated by the teaching intellectually and obviously had real motivation for transformation and liberation. Personally, me, myself, my motivation was pure and simple dukkha. I was in big dukkha, and um, practice was the way of uh, splitting up, splitting out, <laughs> spitting out and splitting away dukkha. <clears throat> very different, very very kinesthetic, very, uh, more body-oriented than my intellect, mind-intellect-oriented. So, <laughs> make that make of that what you will. So, uh, he goes on, I went back to the book again and again. It seemed to draw me to itself. But whenever I picked it up, I found I couldn't read more than a few pages at a time. That's very appropriate, actually. <clears throat> it was not that I found it boring or that I disagreed with what it was saying. Rather, there was a feeling of satisfied satiation whenever I went through a few paragraphs. I would put the book down and let the words roll around inside me for a while. I wasn't thinking about them or trying to understand them or wondering if I agreed with them. That's great. The words were just there at the forefront of my consciousness demanding an intense attention. <clears throat> and and I have the same feeling when I read some portions of, you know, Chittakash Gita um, on my own in the physical hard copy books. I can't read more than a few pages. I wouldn't. It's wrong. <laughs> you don't have a buffet and then another buffet. You know? <clears throat> you don't you don't have an orgasm and then another orgasm, another orgasm, actually. You really don't need it. You have one. And then you you integrate it fully. You you know, you don't eat another buffet after another buffet. That's all I can I put it that way. And so the intense richness, I mean it's like after God says, you know, <laughs> I am or uh, love all, or <laughs> it is, tatpamasi, such it is. Um, you don't keep asking questions. <laughs> you don't need more stuff, because the words are not the key. It's what the words, what, what the words carry, or the light and power in the words. Uh, it's like you don't eat... It's like a banana, you know. You don't eat the shell. You don't eat the the skin, although uh, prot, <clears throat> prot of capax eats banana skin, and you can. I believe it's actually edible. <laughs> How about that? But um, the words of the husk, um, the light power um, of the speaker who spoke them, is is the fruit, and. Um, Reading more words is like taking more husk. There's just no need for more husk after you've um, tasted, um, you know, the, the pith, the, the core nourishment. Anyway, that's how I, I see it, just the same way as he does. 
I think, he goes on, I think that it was the words and the teachings that initially fascinated me rather than the man himself, because in the first few weeks after I read the book, I didn't recollect that I had a very strong urge to go see him. Just a moment. However, all that changed when some of my friends and acquaintances started started going to Bombay to sit with him. All of them, without exception, came back with glowing reports. And it wasn't just their reports that impressed me. Some of them came back looking absolutely transfigured. I remember an American woman called Pat, who appeared radiant, glowing with some inner light after just a two-week visit. Papa G, who was very much his, David's own uh, Satguru, Rudgaru. Papa G, Punjaji, uh, I think also a student of um, Ramana Maharshi. Papaji used to tell a story about a German girl who went back to Germany and was met by her boyfriend at the airport. The boyfriend, who had never met Papaji and who had never been to India, prostrated full length on the airport floor at her feet. He told her afterwards, I couldn't help myself. You've undergone such an obvious illuminating transformation. I felt compelled to do it. David goes on, I know how he felt. I never prostrated to any of the people who had come back from Bombay, but I could recognize the radical transformations that many of them had undergone. Even so, I think it was several months before I decided to go and see for myself what was going on in Bombay. So that's a sign of his greatness, no doubt. Harriet goes on, What took so long? What made you wait? David said, Something had just researched... Has He says, David says, something has just surfaced in my memory, something I haven't thought about for for years. After reading Tattva Masi a few times, I developed a great faith in Maharaja's state and power. I knew he was the real thing. That's all you need to know. When you know, you know, and that's done. And it doesn't matter what other people think, actually. Uh, I knew that if I went to see him, I would accept any advice that he gave me. Around that time, I had heard reports that a couple of foreigners I knew had been to see him and that he advised them to both go back to their respective countries. (laughs) This alarmed me a bit. Yes, (laughs) my guru, whatever you say I shall do, but please don't ask me to do things that I don't want to do. (laughs) Very normal. I was very attached to being in Tiruvannamalai. Tiruvannamalai is uh, where Ramana Ramana Ashramam is, it seems. South, southern India. And I definitely didn't want to go back to the West. Mm-hmm. Something inside me knew that if Maharaj told me to go back to England, where he's from, I would go. I didn't want to leave India, so I held off going to see him for a few months. There was another unresolved issue. I wasn't sure at that point whether or not I needed a human guru. The Ramanashramam party line... <laughs> the party line of the ashram of Ramana Maharshi's uh, devotees or the community of those that follow or or, uh, keep the facility, their party line has always been that Bhagwan, Ramana Ramana Maharshi, Ramana, can be the guru for everyone, even people who never met him while he was alive. And you see, see, he had already died before David Godman was there. I seem to remember having a knowledge of all the places in the Ramanashraman books and in Tatvamasi, where the subject of gurus came up, I would read them quite often without ever coming to a final conclusion about whether I needed a human guru or not. Many people struggle with this. 
Harriet said, so what made you finally overcome your resistance to going to Bombay? David replied, an Australian woman who had been before suggested we go, and I agreed. I always knew I'd go sooner or later. I just needed a push to get me going, and this invitation was it. I'm trying to remember when it was. I think it was the middle of 1978, but I can't be more accurate than that. Harriet said, what were your first impressions? What happened when you arrived? David says, I remember sitting in his room, waiting for him to come upstairs. I was very nervous and apprehensive, but I can't explain why, or can't remember why. I recollect trying to start a conversation with the man sitting next to me, but he asked me to be quiet so that he could meditate. (laughs) Yes, don't be chatty waiting for the guru. Maharaj came in, and a few minutes later I found myself sitting in front of him, telling him who I was and why I had come. It was an afternoon session, and not many people were there in 78. Since I was the only new person present, he called me up to find out who I was and what I wanted. I explained that I had come from Ramanashramam, that I had spent two years there, and that I had been practicing Bhagawan's teachings on self-inquiry, aham vichara, aham vichara, fairly intensively. At this period of my life, I often used to meditate eight hours a day, yeah, that's that'll do it. Although by the time, I mean it, <laughs> that if you want transformation, uh, periods of that really do great work. <laughs> Although by time, and I respect people who do that hugely. Although by the time I met Maharaj, this was the beginning to this was beginning to tail off a bit. Maharaj eventually asked me if I had any questions, and I replied, "Not now. I just want to sit and listen to you for a while." He accepted this and allowed me to disappear to the back of the room. I should say at this point that I had already felt the power and the peace of his presence in the room. It was something very tangible. When I personally heard a talk from Trungpa Rinpoche in God knows what, uh, 85, 86, something like that, Uh, I felt tangibly his uh, power, presence, peace uh, in the room, even though he was drunk and couldn't hardly get to the, get up on the stage. Uh, So it was kind of a funny thing. The audience was so distorted. (laughs) This is Boulder, Colorado, 85, 86, 87, something before he died. And he could, he was wasted, drunk, and uh, walk on the stage. But, But the scene was... And I guess I don't know, maybe it was the atmospherics of um, several hundred um, devotees and disciples, but uh, he filled the room. And uh, that filling the room for Trungpa Rinpoche gave me a sense, yeah, this guy has attainment. I mean, it doesn't mean he's finished, though, obviously. I mean, I I just don't think (laughs) guys that are finished do that. Um, He was nearby to finished, you know, probably non-returner one step away, Trungpa. But this sense of tangible uh, power presence, atmospheric, the being, the, 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 great, the great teacher fills the room. You know, the, the Mahapurush fills the room. If, if people can shut up and, be, and, and stop their chattering monkey life, um, then you'll see he's filling the room. A uh, couple more things. Harriet asks, did you go there with questions you wanted to ask him? Was there anything you wanted to talk about? You wanted to talk to him about? David said, I really can't remember. (laughs) I knew I would end up talking to him, 
but I didn't have any particular burning question. Question to him, how long did it take for you to summon up the courage to start a dialogue with him? David said, I think it was the next day, in the afternoon session. That means I must have sat through two full sessions just listening to what other people had to say and to what Maharaj had to say to them. Eventually, there was a lull in the conversation, and I asked, Hi, I've been doing self-inquiry, Aham Vichar, trying to keep attention on the inner feeling of I, 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 for several years. <laughs> this is a problem. Mm. But no matter how intensively I try to do it, I don't find that my attention stays on the I for more than a few seconds. There doesn't seem to be an improvement in my ability to keep my attention on this inner feeling of I, is that what he's teaching? <laughs> is that the practice? Do the periods of being aware of the I have to get longer and longer until they become more or less continuous? Really? You're repeating a thought in your mind and that's the practice? Mm-hmm. No, he replied. Just having the strong urge to seek this I and investigate it is enough. Don't worry about how well or how long you're holding on to it. Meaning some thoughts? The strong desire to know the I... That's that's called desire for, for liberation and freedom from dukkha. Strong desire to know the I will keep taking you back to it when your attention strays. If something is important to you, it keeps coming up in your mind. If knowing the I, tham, uh, is important to you, or aham, you'll find yourself going back to it again and again. <clears throat> After that, I think I talk to him almost every day, mostly about various aspects of his teachings on consciousness. He seemed to encourage questions from me, and I always enjoyed quizzing him. However, the exact details of the questions and answers seem to have slipped through the cracks of my memory. And, and so this is the student who's sincere and not totally fucked up and not uh, coming in with some attitude and not tangled by their mind, but a little. But in general... Um, the galloping horse um, deserves good treatment. Uh, If it's straight, I help it along. So he wasn't much crooked. Nisargadat saw it. And uh, it was straight. He helped it along. So he's encouraging questions. He's not being harsh. This is the beginning. Uh, He wants... He knows David has potential. Um, And there's no problem to address. So he's not giving him a hard time. Later on, uh, it may be that David, like most of us, (laughs) gets some development and then stop or get stuck or rest on, you know, some moderate uh, silence of mind, some (laughs) relatively stable equanimity um, achieved, some one or two or several breakthroughs achieved then uh, I'll just enjoy this. (laughs) Then the teacher gets hard on you. Then the teacher will beat you because he wants you to finish the work, not uh, rest, you know, indefinitely midway up the mountain. But we normally do. (laughs) So at the beginning, uh, uh, he was known as a straight and was helped along. Later, if he became a little crooked in the sense that he uh, wanted to get, uh, we all do, uh, wanted to stay uh, with certain attainment or clarity, then Nisargadat might have been harder on him. 
or that might have been why Nizargadot was sometimes then later harder on him. So, but I, uh, and this will be where we end for today. <clears throat> uh, next time, picking up at um, the middle of seven, Harriet's question about Ramana Marshe. Uh, but I must say, with a bit of shock, that if this is the practice, then it's a mess. Now, it may be that's how he understood the practice. It may be that Ramana wasn't there. <laughs> the, 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 the teacher, when the teacher's gone and you take your primary teachings from his successor, uh, you got to be careful. Because <laughs> the successor is not the founder. The successor is number two. The initiator is number one. And number two uh, commonly um, distorts, distorts the teaching of number one of the guru, of the satguru, of the lineage. Not only do they distort the, the doctrine a bit, but they don't have the attainment. <laughs> if they don't have the attainment, then uh, what can you get? What can you, what can you say? I think, in fact, it's better to go back to the original teachings, the original, uh, you know, with his best, and then you get into the, the swamp of translation. But if you can make your way through the swamp of translation to a fine translation, and there are some of all, the words of the original teacher in translation are commonly better than direct relationship with a successor. Let it be said. And, you know, every time organizations split, um, number twos and number threes uh, go off and found their own lineage or sub-lineage or, or break-off splinter group from the original. And they become the root guru of, the, of that lineage. <laughs> Who don't have the attainment of the original one from whom they split. Personally, I, I, and that's why, and that's exactly why I stay with uh, Dao De Ching, translated by Wei Li, and Zhang Su, translated by Burton Watson, and uh, Voice of the Self, translated by M.P. Pandit, and, <clears throat> you know, some very heavy classical scholars translating Heraclitus, uh, and uh, Access to Insight, and, um, Tansara Biko translating uh, Pali Suttas and Biku Bodhi. You, the the original sources, well translated, are a hell of a lot better than their successors of lesser attainment. Even when they are right in front of you, shake your hand and give you a big kiss. I'd rather stay with the founders and uh, the best translations I can find. Satamma is better there is is more fully found there. Such, uh, thus I believe. Thus have I heard. <laughs> so I believe. And the second point to end here, you know, I'm I'm sort of like this Argadat. I like criticizing, but not all the time. I love beauty too. You know, I I put my I put flowers to my eye and and absorb the uh, friend, the 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 electromagnetics of the flower to my eye. Ever seen that? So, um, <laughs> so don't call me an angry fellow. That's not all. But if David was thinking that um, he, the practice is keeping attention on the inner feeling of I. What the fuck do you mean? You mean thought. You mean attend, keep generating a thought called I? 
I don't find that my attention stays on the I for more than a few seconds. You mean keeps your attention on a thought called I? <laughs> There's no I. <laughs> Duh. There's no ego. <laughs> There's boundless awareness that is coalesced into a sense of identity that is fraudulent. Duh. Got it? So there's no I to focus upon. How can you focus on an I when I is, is in, infinite intelligence, intelligent infinity? The true, who, who is the speaker? <laughs> Don't you know? There's no I to realize other than infinite, boundless awareness beyond any coalesced, subjectivist identity. Everybody should know that. So, so I, I'm sure Ramana knows that. I'm sure Nisargadat knows that. But you see, you know, there is a problem. You know, there's a difference between the, the way of a sage, the Tao of a sage, and the talent of a sage. I don't think there's any problem with Ramana Marshi's talent either. It's just most likely David got his teachings from successors to Ramana who said, your way, the practice here is keep your attention on an inner feeling of I. Shit. What a bad practice. <laughs> to me, you do whatever you like. If you love it, if it helps you attain, great. But I think that's crazy. It means you keep thinking a certain thought. Generate the thought of I again and again. What the hell does that do? <laughs> um, High-end, uh, fourth jhana is much better than that. Take the fourth jhana. And you'll and you'll get what you need. Listen to Buddha Dhamma and go and 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 live in the four and and practice to the fourth jhana. That's all you need. Anyway, <laughs> because everything falls away. I think Webu Sayadaw understood that. Shamatha naturally goes to vipassana. Concentration naturally goes to insight. Um, mindfulness, real sati mindfulness. Um, which is a sort of non-grasping um, dharana, non-grasping concentration, um, naturally reveals um, anatta. Absolutely. Anatta is naturally seen um, when concentratedness, uh, like in the fourth jhana, uh, goes deep enough and there's no holding onto anything other than seeing. And then one realizes, oh, there is no seer. Or there's no identity to the seer. There's a seeing without a seer. There, there's awareness without a beingness. Like that. <clears throat> anyway, having fun. Hope you're well. Um, next time, oops. Next time we'll pick up in the middle of page seven. It's beautiful teaching. And I like David Godman. Also, they're all great people. Uh, just beware of translators and uh, senior students. <laughs> all right, <laughs> take good care. See you next time, and good night.